brother is watching you. Oh. <laughs> Listeners, you are warned. This program is not to be listened to. Welcome to 1984 Today, your one-stop shop for all things dystopia. I'm your host, Mike Friedman. There are many themes we want to explore with this podcast. What constitutes a dystopia and how it comes into being? The nature and dangers of utopian thinking. How we imagine and create art about perfect and imperfect worlds. How we define progress and whether it's a good thing. How technology enables concentration of power and drives social alienation. How to protect and increase individual freedom. So it's a pleasure and a great opportunity to have someone with us now whose work encompasses all of the above and more. L. Griffin. Elle is the author of The Elysian, a newsletter that goes out to over 11,000 subscribers, sharing non-fiction and fiction on the idea of utopia. She's a fellow with Substack and Roots of Progress. She's a freelance journalist with bylines in Esquire, Insider, Forbes, and more. She has degrees in fashion merchandising and French, and did her graduate studies in Mariology, a field I was unaware of until her bio explained that it's the study of the Virgin Mary. Elle, I'm impressed intimidated, and most of all, curious. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, uh, I suppose for our starter, then, I would bring up the fact that you, at least within the Substack community, um, elevated uh, your profile slightly by responding to one of these ginned up controversies that bubbles up from the mainstream press every once in a while in uh, November, 2023, Jonathan Katz at the Atlantic wrote uh, uh, an article called Substack has a Nazi problem about uh, the fact that there were people on Substack who were publishing newsletters and monetizing them who genuinely were racists and white supremacists and white nationalists and in general unsavory types um the upshot of his article mainly being that this is a problem that requires censorship and demonetization and deplatforming and you took the initiative um to create an open letter in december a couple of weeks after that article came out that was co-signed by quite a few fellow authors on Substack. I, uh, I'll accept the deep emotional wound of not being invited to sign it on the basis that we didn't know each other then. Um, and your response was that Substack and the people on it should be able to publish what they want because it's important to have an open debate and places where people can gather and discuss things rather than driving them underground. So to begin the conversation, I'd love to draw you out on how you came across Jonathan Katz's article, what you thought of it in articles like that with that type of angle and um, how you went about writing the open letter, getting it signed, putting it out there, what the response was. Yeah, I think, well, I saw the Jonathan Katz article and I, my first impression was, where are the Nazis? <laughs> this is a platform I've now been writing for um, 
for three years. And I just have to say that the the product design of it is so much different than any other platform I've ever been on. So my letter was actually not to say we should have free speech. It, It actually wasn't very free speech absolutist at all. It was really just in, in the, you know, in this kind of battle against extremism on the internet, I actually think pro- uh, Substack's product design has worked a lot better um, at that than centralized moderation has on other platforms. I mean, the upset here, um, you know, Katz's upset was over 16 accounts on Substack that we wouldn't have even heard of if he didn't find them and publicize them. And he admits in the article himself that he went on extremist um, chat channels to try to find out what the Substack accounts were that were anti-Semitic or hateful. Um, of I, You know, after his article, I went and looked for these accounts and from what I can understand, only three to four of them are actually active and only one of them is making any money and he's making to the tune of about a couple hundred dollars a month. And from what I can tell of his content, they're like reviews of music albums, not hate speech as far as I can tell. A Nazi Um, music critic. That's a a new one on me. That that almost sounds interesting. I think people were upset about things that he said off of the platform, and they were also upset that um, the one of the founders of Substack, Hamish McKenzie, invited him on his podcast. So it came off as this, like, Substack is promoting this guy who, I guess, has some kind of morally unimpeachable character. Um, and I get it. Like, I wish that even that much hate didn't exist on the platform. But my, you know, my argument was, other social media platforms have hundreds of thousands of extremist accounts that are actively being promoted and viralized and, yes, monetized. And there can be no doubt that X, Facebook, MailChimp, Beehive, Ghost, Amazon Books, or any other platform one could want to write for host many more hate accounts and are making much more money from them than Substack. Um, and, the, you know, the only difference is they aren't being targeted by the Atlantic who, by the way, their largest competitor is independent writers on Substack. Um, And if we're going to argue that the founders of a company shouldn't promote hate content, well, yeah, that's a great bar. But then what is Elon Musk doing and why is that okay? It kind of just seemed like everybody was in this upset over Substack over a couple of dozen accounts. and, And I just, you know, in my head, I thought that some would seem content to leave Substack only to remain on literally any other platform seemed nonsensical to me. It also, I mean, maybe I'm coming at it from a more absolutist position than the one you yourself hold, but I just have perhaps a bias in favor of the idea that sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? I I think it's probably a good thing to know where the Nazis are and who they are. And if there are people that want to get together and, you know, drink schlitz and wear pillowcases on their heads and have a fire on their lawn, maybe it's important for us to know who they are so that they don't nip out of the shadows and surprise us one day. And it also makes it significantly less sexy when it's quite obvious, as you say, that it's, oh, it's like this one guy, he makes a couple of hundred bucks, he has some far out opinions that very few people agree with, obviously, because we know what kind of money he makes, and it shows how unpopular it is, Right. versus keeping 
in a way, you know, keeping the ballot secret, so to speak, you know, you never know how popular a film is at the Oscars. It just wins. They don't publish the votes, as William Goldman said. Right. So you never really know if it won. You know, was it by two votes that that film is the best film? Was it by a thousand votes? Having. Well, yeah. And the free speech approach is dangerous. um, The free speech approach. Any kind of censorship is obviously dangerous because even even the deplatforming that happened from Facebook and Twitter, um, what did they do? They just created Parler and and um, Truth Social, and the what ended up happening is all of our major media organizations aren't on there, so we don't even know what's happening there unless you have an account there. Whereas when it was all on Twitter, everybody was reporting on it left and right, everything that was happening, every idea everybody had. I'm not sure that it's better to kick a bunch of people off the platform and, you know, create other places where. Well, sure. And you know what else Nazis do? They buy shoes. What are we going to do? Outlaw Timberland, right? Because they're, you know, they're doing business with Nazis. I mean, it's it's the type of line of logic that I just think is unfortunate. It's emotionally understandable. It's unseemly and unpleasant, and in my view, incorrect. The the attitudes that a lot of these people have, but the idea that there should not be anywhere they can express it other than in the the garage of their house or you know in a meeting in the woods, I just think that's more dangerous, as you say. Yeah, and I don't think. I don't think platforms should be promoting it or allowing it to go viral. I I think it's ridiculous that I can be on Twitter for two seconds and instantly see the most hateful thing Kanye said show up in my feed without even following him at all. Um, On Substack, it's incredibly hard to to go viral. There's no way to do it. You have to follow somebody. It's just... Yeah, your readers are there for you. Exactly. There's so I think that's a much around safer between. approach, you know. Hmm. No, I agree. And so I guess I'm I'm curious, especially since it doesn't seem like it was a proper fire under you defense of free speech in an absolute way. What what was it in you that snapped and felt you had to respond to this article by Jonathan Katz and the genesis of that open letter? To be clear, I am an advocate for free speech. I just think that in in this case, the argument is over extremism on platforms. And I know that platforms are um, owned by companies and that companies can have different rules. Sure. Um, so I was just it's not only a First arguing. Amendment argument. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, in the case of the Katz article, honestly, it's not just him. There were a lot of people before him who have tried to target Substack in the mainstream media. And the worst possible thing that could happen is all the mainstream media organizations vilify Substack to the point that everybody leaves the platform. The platform can't make money and we have to all make our living writing for the Atlantic again, instead of writing for ourselves on Substack. So to me, it is so frustrating to just see Substack steamrolled by the mainstream media over and over again in this, in these kind of culture wars. Um, And Um, so after the cat's piece, when I was just, you know, went in and did my own research and tried to figure out like, what was the real problem here? Um, I wrote my own Substack note, which is kind of like their Twitter, um, about it, just saying, you know, things are better here than anywhere else, literally anywhere else on the internet. Um, and the, 
founder of the Substack, Hamish McKenzie, sent me an email just being like, thank you so much for this note. It said, uh, I think it was something like, um, you know, love this note, you nailed it. And I was, and I just responded back, no, actually you're nailing it. Thank you for designing the platform this way. Um, and I mentioned to him that I was, I had reached out to the Atlantic and I was, I, I had proposed a rebuttal piece to them. Um, nobody got back to me, of course. Um, and I so, am shocked. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I was like, I think I'm just going to write, I'm going to expand it into my own letter on Substack. And he was like, um, he was like, well, if you do, uh, I'd be happy to help you find people to sign it if you want. And so then I was like, okay, let's just do that. Then. So I wrote an article. He sent an email out to some people and I sent an email out to all of my people and I sent them all the draft that I wrote and was like, what do you think? Are you in? And they all signed their names on a Google Doc. Um, and then we published it. We were very aware at this time that there was another writer on Substack who was circling like an opposition letter. Um, so I think that's where the idea of like, let's get signatures came from, because originally I was just going to write an essay. But then since um, I found out that this, you know, these other writers were doing an opposition document and they were trying to get signatures, I was like, well, we you know, I guess we should do the same thing too. So hmm. yeah, <laughs> ended up a, turning crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's an interesting thing, this social media world and, you know, in marketing, what they call social proof, just why, why is it that, I mean, first of all, why is it that what would be considered the most basic middle of the road idea is now considered a kind of rebellious, uh, fringe belief in terms of defending the right of people to publish what they want to publish. And second of all, why do we take certain ideas more seriously if they have a bunch of signatures underneath them? I, I just, the open letter thing, I, I applaud you for doing it and I was delighted to see it and I enjoyed reading it. Um, but I just, I find myself musing on this question. What, what has happened? The Overton window in our culture somehow has shifted over time in my lifetime so much that we actually now have a, a public discussion which seems to believe that a, a strong pro-free speech stance is somehow a right-wing or a conservative position that that to be liberal in quotation marks is somehow to be wringing your hands about the idea that someone somewhere might be thinking something someone else wouldn't like it. It's just a very strange time for these ideas and for us as a society. I mean, that's just my feeling. I, I, I'm curious about you, especially since after sending it out, I'd love to know what the response was. Well, I think that, um, I think that it's actually not very surprising because it's the response was something that we've been dealing with for <laughs> thousands of years, which is we now we call it virtue signaling. But the idea is that we, you know, try to paint ourselves in the white. And sometimes you have to paint somebody else in the black to do that. Um, it's it's not ideal. It's very, <laughs> very like 
It's not, it doesn't involve reason or <laughs> logic. It's more emotional than anything. But um, I actually wrote an article about this recently because David Hume wrote that humans are not rational beings, they're emotional. And so to try to, to try to counter that with ration is like one of the biggest challenges of humanity of all time. So hmm. I think when I, when I wrote this response and then the next day the opposition response came out and immediately you know, there was a lot of support on for my letter. In fact, we had to open up the letter to further um, to further signatures because so many people wanted to sign it. I think there ended up being like 500 signatures on if we add everyone on notes that um, signed themselves. Um, but then there was this kind of weird antagonism that was was painting the argument as pro-Nazi, anti-Nazi, and the people that were pro-moderation were the anti-Nazis. And so people were actually calling me and many other writers like me Nazis. And that was when I was like, okay, well, <laughs> so... Well, that's, just, I mean, that's, that, but, but that's, you know, in a way... Just to be clear, we're both anti-Nazi here. We just have a different idea of what will solve that problem. <laughs> I, I think part of it is also a, a, a something that's happened in the intelligentsia in Western uh, societies. I mean, it's in a way it's always been there, but it seems more prominent now, which is a kind of obsession with the way you use language as if using the language changes the thing described yeah, or changes exactly. the reality. And so... It, it, what you said is it makes perfect sense to me, not in the sense that I think it's a good way of viewing it, but it makes sense that that would be the reaction you got. Because, I mean, why do some people identify themselves as anti-fascist or anti-racist? Exactly. It's because you immediately discredit anyone that disagrees with whatever, you know, bill of goods you're selling. Anyone who opposes an anti-racist, in quotation marks, is de facto racist. It's It's a very clever semantic frame mm -hmm. to impose on a discussion to immediately as you say make yourself the good person and anyone who doesn't agree with all of your ideas aligned with the least savory people right well the the opposition response called their um i think the headline of the article was something like substack writers against nazis and i think <laughs> so i mean i could have I could have called my piece the exact same thing. I could have given it that same title because I also don't want to see Nazis in my Substack feed. writers against Nazis <laughs> and moderators. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think product design has been more effective against, you know, Nazi and hate content than moderation has been as evidenced by Twitter and Facebook. But I think that, um, you know, when you see the word Nazi and the word Substack paired together any amount of times, you're just like, oh, this seems like something I need to distance myself from. Um, we're not having that same conversation. We're not calling Twitter the Nazi place to hang out, even though maybe you could call it that. <laughs> well, I mean, don't get me wrong. But if we it, did. It, it, it's, it's evident that Twitter's new management have significantly altered the, the type of conversations people are comfortable having on there or maybe they have this is the this is the bit that maybe i think maybe i'm being naive but maybe they haven't maybe the difference is since they aren't apparently in quotation marks aren't uh using the same techniques of shadow banning and suppressing and d 
what's the what's the word de-emphasizing the circulation of certain tweets maybe the same thing that was there before is there now they're just not keeping it away from you so perhaps mm -hmm. it's not about emboldening people to come out and say things that uh, other people find offensive or problematic it could just be that they're not bothering to hide it i have to you know i don't know what's going on under the bonnet over there i can't say for certain which it is right so that's the other thing going back to this sunlight being a good disinfectant idea is that's why it's so important to have this stuff out to an extent out in the open that doesn't mean you're gonna you know get the the the, the nearest right-wing extremist and give them the biggest microphone on the biggest platform right. but right. it just means you know it's good to know what's going on where these people are what they say so you can really measure if there's more chatter coming from that corner or not. No? Yeah. I mean, I think so. <laughs> and apart from the, uh, the suggestion or the inference that you were somehow sympathizing with Nazis because you mentioned that demonetizing them might not get rid of them. Uh, shocking concept, I know. Uh, there was no really unpleasant pushback from the open letter. You didn't. Did you get any inquiries from mainstream press to take your perspective, or did you get angry death threats from people who thought you were empowering Nazis and they thought you should stop? I mean, no. I mean, uh, I did see my letter quoted significantly in the mainstream press on New York Times and a bunch of other ones, um, all in articles that. <laughs> painted Substack horribly. Um, <laughs> but of course, they're from the mainstream media. But um, the, the benefit of Substack is that, you know, even my piece that I published, I locked the comments to paid subscribers. Um, and I didn't respond to people on notes because it just was getting, um, I, I could see that it was kind of getting out of any kind of realm of logic. So I just was mm. like, I'm not going to just jump in and try to defend myself is just going to keep this conversation, you know, in the stream forever. And I didn't want to do that. Um, so for me, it wasn't that crazy. Um, I didn't get any crazy email. I had one um, subscriber write me a, a list of why I was evil and um, ask for a refund. But other than that, it was and, and mild. In that, in that moment, what what did you suddenly discover your refund policy was? <laughs> I just gave her a full refund. I mean, anyone who wants oh, okay. a refund, I'll, I'll give her. I give her a full refund. Um, but I just I think that you know, well, I I I had asked her to write me an email, being like, you know. I'm so sorry you, you know, felt this way, like, let me know, because I thought we were going to be able to have an intellectual kind of debate about it. But then she kind of just was like, your whole personality sucks. <laughs> so <laughs> you, know, like, well. you know how I've been reading you for three years and liking everything you said? Well, now I know you suck. Give me my money back. You're wrong. <laughs> Nuanced yeah, debate. Fantastic. I know. Just, you know, well, can't I, be everything to everyone. Uh, look, I... Uh, I, I had an episode with C.J. Hopkins, uh, who's a writer you may have heard of, who's going through a court case in Germany because he wrote a book that features, in a very low-key way, features a swastika on the cover as a comment on what he saw as a kind of nascent totalitarianism or fascism in the policy of the German government, which is the country where he's living. And he's being prosecuted for distributing material in support of 
an extremist organization, which is obviously totally not what he's on about. And after that episode came out, um, you know, he was great. He was very supportive of, uh, of the, the episode and of the podcast and he shared it quite widely and we got a bunch of new subscribers and it was amazing. Once it was almost like mathematical somehow, as soon as we got above a certain number of subscribers, suddenly I had someone in a comment section sharing something about the protocols of the elders of Zion. And it's like, I had to look at that and think for a second, who do I want to be? I really, I talked to, I talked to my wife about it. I really agonized over it. Like I really don't want to be someone who's deleting someone's comments or who's, um, who's banning people just because they're responding. I want people to respond. I want to see a lively conversation, a kind of community engagement. And I'm happy to, to holler back and to be challenged and to defend something. If I said something, someone wants to pull me up on. And I really, you know, I sat with it. I had to just let it go. And luckily the, the fire died down without me needing, it didn't become a kind of troll battle that went on forever. So I didn't need, need to do anything about it, but it was really instructive seeing myself having that challenge. And since you have a, a very healthy subscriber base and this experience you're talking about, when you think of your own approach to moderation, I remember CJ, who's very much in favor of free speech and right now fighting essentially a free speech uh, legal fight. And he was saying he shuts people down in the comments or, or bans them if they cross a certain line because it's his space and he's not a country. So it's different. So I'm very curious if, if you see it the same way or differently in terms of how you moderate, curate your own space. Yeah, I mean, that is the benefit of Substack is I can fully moderate my space and I think that is much more effective than Substack choosing how they want to do that for me. Um, I have chosen to create a Substack where um, th there is the CEO of a company and an anarchist in the same comment section um, because we are talking about politics and business and ideas. And I want us to be able to have conversations about that. I think there needs to be a place for that on the Internet. Now, if somebody responds with a comment um, that just gives a hot take like, CEOs should all die, then I will say, I'm sorry, this doesn't, you know, um, meet my guidelines at the literary salon. I'm afraid you're going to have to back up your position if that's how you feel. <laughs> I see that you wrote, I don't like you or your stupid face. Your face is stupid. Go die. Yeah, well, can you please elucidate your nuanced opinion, please? <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. First of all, I lock all of my essays. The comments are locked to paid subscribers only, so you would have to pay to say that. I don't know that you would. <laughs> well, people buy tomatoes to throw at people, right? So. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's why they bought them. <laughs> Sorry, anyway, so continue, yeah. please. So when well, you're moderating, that, yeah. that's that, so that's your approach, basically, to, to try yeah. and have it be a conversation. And then yeah. if for whatever reason it degenerates, then you have to draw a line under it. I just delete it, so. it or ban them from commenting. So, yeah, that's easy. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. And something that's very unique about your approach and your work, which is why I was very keen to uh, to speak with you is you, you write both nonfiction and fiction. And it's great 
to have you to talk about that because the fascinating things about dystopia to me come from both directions. They are both the the real trends in the world around me and in technology and society that I see that I think are important to discuss and to question, but also the the great novels, the the characters, the the ways people dream up uh, as I called it in the intro, imperfect worlds. Uh, so I'd really love to know why, why utopia, why perfect and imperfect worlds? What drew you to that direction? Um, because everything right now in the media is dystopia. <laughs> we need a counterbalance. Um, I think that. Is this one we... I apologize by the way? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I get why it's an exciting genre. Um, I think that, but I do think that it, it has caused some problems in our society in the fact that um, when you see in, in all of our, you know, fantasy, not just books, but show TV shows, um, films, everything, video games, that AI is used to create the apocalypse and kill off humanity and um, a computer chip in your brain is used for government surveillance and you just, you only see the dystopian uses for technology or the dystopian, you know, things that governments do, um, then it just creates this global pessimism. And I think that is um, very all the rage right now. And mm. Um, I wanted to counter that. There's been this kind of idea of solar punk as a genre, but there's like no actual books in that genre. It's just kind of like this idea solar people would punk? like to see. Yeah, solar punk is like, it's like this genre where there's all this technology and stuff, but it's used for, to create this more beautiful pastoral setting. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not common. It's just kind of a niche, a niche thing that people have taken interest in. But, but I think we actually do need that. I think we need to see, you know, there was one episode of Black Mirror. I think it was called like San Junipero where the, the, um, you know, the dot on your temple puts you into a, a virtual world. And that is used because, as we learn, a quadriplegic and a woman who are dying are able to live out full lives in this virtual world. It's a, it is a utopian vision for that technology. It was one of the first, you know, now that the fact that the rest of that series was all dystopian and how things can go wrong, I think, uh, you know, is a bummer. But that one episode that San Junipero was, it was hopeful. It was good. There was still a dramatic storyline. There were still cur curves where we were like, what's going to happen? Um, but it gave a, it actually gave a more utopian worldview than other. And it's quite telling. I think if I'm not mistaken, that episode is the one that won them. Uh, was it an Emmy? I think. Oh, did it? Well, I'm uh, glad. Yeah, it, was, it was, it was, it was that specific episode that was awarded something in the television world. Um, oh, that's so good. Cause it was so good. Right, but it's also, yeah, I mean, there's the old George Clooney line when he was questioned about this in a press conference when he was promoting a film. He said, Americans like a little too much cheese in their souffle. So, you know, is it, is it that, that that's, what, that's what people really want is the, the hopefulness, the happy talk? Or you think people are actually kind of mainlining the bummer, the, down, the downer, the, the negative trip? I don't, I, I think that that is such 
everybody always says nobody wants utopian fiction. Everybody only wants dystopian fiction. That's just the way we're wired. And I think that is so not true because why, why to this day, what are the most watched television series? It's like Friends and Seinfeld and The Cheers. Office. Yeah, yeah. And these were shows where literally nothing bad ever happens. And every every episode, you can expect to just be happy. Um, today, all of our shows are dark and gritty. It's this, you know, big, uh, dramatic, everything is horrible. And then what, what do you want to do after you watch that? You're like, I'm going to go watch a Friends episode because I, <laughs> I need to <laughs> get my mind off. feeling, you know, feeling right again. And I think we saw a um, resurgence of that this year when we saw Ted Lasso and how incredible that did. It was like, mm-hmm. it was not a, it was not a sitcom. So it wasn't fluffy. There was dramatic elements there, you know, people were suffering from mental um, ailments. Not everything went right, but it was still so positive and uplifting and hopeful. Um, and I think that we just, our whole media landscape needs more of that. It shouldn't be everything is only, um, you know, dystopian saga versus fluffy romance. We can have something that is positive and, and um, you know, and real. And good. Yeah. I, I, while, while you were talking, I was listening to you and I was really feeling like there is a very interesting, almost visceral reaction to this idea of de-emphasizing the negative in the world in favor of something that's lighter or more positive or uplifting something to do with, uh, in a way being kind of dishonest or willfully choosing not to see quote all the bad stuff. Right. And I, that's not me saying you're doing that. It's I'm noticing that there is a kind of a knee jerk. So maybe this idea, Oh, people want dystopia. Well, maybe we're fascinated by it. You know, the, the doom scrolling, the, the worst case scenarios, the, uh, the endless lists of all the things that are going wrong or historically wrong. Um, you know, the, the Freudian death wish of it all, so to speak. But, but yeah, I do, I do feel like, I don't want to say that we have to have some kind of social realist rule where you need to be constantly banging on about everything that sucks because that's what's real because the joy is real. The happiness is real. The, the pleasure and the possibility are real. Why do I have that reaction? Um, this is, I don't know because, but because this has just been human nature forever, but I mean, it's the same thing with the Academy Awards. Like what is everybody saying is going to win the Academy Award this year? It's going to be Oppenheimer. Um, why wouldn't Barbie win? (laughs) There's a reason. And it's just because we take serious work more seriously. Um, every, every year I attend the Sundance Film Festival, Um, and you know, this year I have a press pass and my sole purpose was to go see all of the (laughs) utopian or hopeful films. Let me just tell you, there are hundreds of films coming to Sundance this year. There are five that I want to see that have any kind of hopeful. I mean, they, they literally, they talk about fracking, they talk about racism, they talk about, um, you know, disease and third world countries. And, and there's just this idea that the more depressing 
and serious the subject matter is, the more seriously we can take that art. Um, and it's, I don't know why it's like that. It really drives me insane because that is not the best art. And when and when you actually see what people go watch, it's not like everyone's going to watch the really depressing movie all the time. They're just, for whatever reason, you know, when you have to make an actor cry, that seems like harder to do than to make them smile. So that seems like it's more deserving of a, an award. I don't know. Um, but it's the same thing with Pulitzer Prize winning novels. I went back and, or Pulitzer Prize winning literature, I went back and looked and, um, it was like every single one was just horribly depressing. There was, you know, nothing. We don't we don't reward um, seeing the good in in life. We only reward seeing the bad. Um, I don't. It's hmm. I don't know why. And and in a way, again, there's this sense, continuing from the reaction I was sharing with you. There's this sense that somehow, if if I'm reading something that's focused on or emphasizing or entirely about the good or the happy or the joyful, there is some dark, tight, knotted part of me that thinks of it as therefore ultimately false or mm -hmm. leaving something out, right? Right. I, I can't tell you why that is, but I see it and I, I understand what you mean. And I really do sympathize with your, um, with your question. I think it's I think it's associated with naivete. I think that if you see a if you see a child and an adult standing at the window looking out at the rain, like the adult will be like, Oh, it's such a crappy day and the kid will be like, Puddles <laughs> And and like both things are true, like it is raining and there are puddles, but like which outlook is the more real? They're both real. You know, you can choose to see that as a positive thing or you can choose to see that as a negative thing it doesn't one is not more real than the other though they're both real so it's 100%. interesting that i think that when you grow up to see the child's response as being positive we associate that with naivete they don't know anything they don't mm. know yet that rain will make it so much harder to go outside today or i don't know you know it's just well, they just don't have the same amount of head noise as grown-ups do i suppose yeah you know they're 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 not constantly well maybe they are but in a different way uh, children are not in the same rut of habitually telling themselves a story about their life in their own head all the time and that right is always complaining about what i have to do and where i have to go and it, it sucks more if it's raining than if it's sunny and i like this and i don't like that right it, i mean I, my approach with with this project is um in a way aligned with what you're talking about because I, I try to keep my sense of humor about this. I I do take these things seriously. I, I, I do have concerns about certain aspects of what's going on culturally, socially, technologically. And I think it, it would be kind of, uh, part of me feels there would be something irresponsible to take that too lightly. But at the same time, there are some very strange, weird, and funny things going on in the world. And I feel like if we are to survive the 21st century as a society worth preserving, we have to keep our sense of humor and our sense of the ridiculous because some of this stuff is just laughable. I, I remember what Mel Brooks said when he was interviewed about the producers, which of course was his film and then very famous musical. Uh, which in its way made fun of 
Hitler. And he wrote that in 19, that came out in 1968, 23 years, which proves the South Park theory that everything's funny after 22 years. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it came out and it was controversial. People, you can't joke about this. You can't have Dick Sean playing Hitler and have a musical and, you know, have chicks in SS uniforms, <laughs> high kicking like the Rockettes. That's not okay. And I, I saw this great line. He said, Maybe if more people had laughed at Hitler the first time, he would never have gotten that much power. So I think there's a tremendous, I think there's a, there is a truth in that, that, that mockery can serve us well, that ridicule, that refusing to an extent to take some of this stuff or some of these people seriously, you know, like the Jonathan Katz guy, you know, I mean, why, why does someone get to, determine what is the serious debate in a way that's part of the presumption of the media establishment right they get to decide when it's a serious question when we all have to kind of furrow our brows and and really not joke about this kind of thing yeah okay i have two thoughts about what you just said i think that um you're right we need to laugh about it actually on the subject of uh kind of a lighthearted Hitler. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm all ears now. Go on. <laughs> Jojo Rabbit. Have you right. seen that film? I haven't actually. Oh my gosh. It is, it is one of the best films of all time. One of my favorite films of all time takes place in Nazi Germany um, with a little boy who's, who basically participates in like a summer camp that is like pro Nazi where he's like learning to shoot the Nazis. as like a little kid. Um, and so Hitler becomes his best friend and his like an imaginary friend that he like goes to for advice. But the whole, um, the whole thing manages to condemn the hatred and take that of it, those events very seriously. I mean, the child's mom dies in this Nazi, his friends die. And yet it is such a positive and hopeful movie about humanity. It's a great example of what I think I would say is like utopian in the sense of like a positive worldview, even as dark things are happening. Um, like life is beautiful, right? Right, exactly. Um, and the second thing I want to bring up is I don't think that necessarily like having things like that, that we could just like laugh Hitler away <laughs> um, or that he wouldn't have come into power if we could. Have, oh, that you was know, Mel like, Brooks, not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, we saw up until World War II, like I'm right now I'm studying humanist literature and all of these humanist philosophers throughout the world were like largely pacifist, completely fast, like anti-war. Oh. Until World War II, and then suddenly all of the humanists become pro-war in this one case. Why? Because the people that they were up against were actually anti-humanist. There was this huge anti-humanist movement. Um, a lot of the German philosophers at the time um, were like, uh, you know, rational thinking and critical thinking is not the answer. What we need is power. What we need is, um, you know, to to just assert what we need um and uh, overwhelm the enemy blood and soil yes it was yeah. it was just all it was all about power um and you know the humanists at that time realized 
the only way to, you can't tamp something down like that by saying, you should think critically. And if they could change their mind from being focused on power to being focused on rational thinking, like, no, that's not going to work. They had to meet power with power. They had to, they had to go to war against them. They had to fight them down. Um, I think that uh, all, you know, there's a reason why the Katz article was so upsetting to everybody. And that's because there's this, I, everybody remembers World War II, even though we weren't there for it. It was one of the most horrible things to happen in human history. And it was recent enough that we're all like, this is resurging. Like, how could, like, back then we should have stopped things sooner. Can we stop things sooner now? You know, like, and maybe it should start with on the internet. We notice that people are saying hateful things on the internet. Maybe we should stop it there before it gets into power. Well, we have to remember that the reason why Hitler came into power, the reason why even Putin came into power, they were elected. They were elected before they were even really crazy. Um, I mean, sometimes the craziness helped them become get even more powerful because, you know, it was after Hitler was sent to prison that suddenly all of his followers were coming out of the woodwork being like, now we've got to elect them. That like he, you know, we, we can see a similar thing playing out with Trump in the way followers are like, you know, the, the you know, bringing anything against him makes him more powerful. And, um, and, and so I, I think that it's like, you know, laughing isn't going to be enough. And I, I, but we need to, we need to meet it with power with power. It's just like, where do we meet it? Uh, and at what time and at what place, like, how do we stop it from infiltrating democracy Um, and when you have people who uh to use the the kind of (laughs) the og nazis the 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 v the version one nazis (laughs) uh, as an example you know when you have a essentially a grievance politics uh uh an ideology that at least in part draws on the idea of people who feel that they have been shortchanged, cut loose by uh, their leaders, stabbed in the back was the big phrase at the time historically. Cracking down on that, trying to silence people, trying to punish them into accepting that they are not in an inferior subjugated position plays into that grievance narrative it plays into their sense of victimhood you know when that whole it's okay to punch a nazi thing on the internet happened where you'd see some alt-right douche getting you know slapped in the face while reporting from some protest somewhere there was a whole meme video thing of people going around and just wanting to hit someone in the head whoever had a side parting and was wearing khakis right um, and it's just like, well, well, these are people who say that their opponents are unreasonable and violent and that they are not safe in their own country, which is why they want to be idiots about how to quote, take their power back. You're not going to convince them that they're wrong by making right. them feel like they're being victimized and justifying it morally. Like that's, that's not a winning strategy. Right. I mean, I think that, um, one great thing that authoritarian leaders do that draws a lot of attention to them is that they focus on all the bad things that are happening. They don't they don't say, here's a solution to the problems they're we're facing. 
They say, here's the problem. The rich people are getting richer. The poor people are getting poorer. Capitalism is destroying the country. Um, it's, you know, it's holding you down. It's, it's, they, they point out all the problems, but there's not, they don't, they don't give it a solution at all. Their solution is elect me. <laughs> and, and somehow that's going to change. I mean, Hitler was like anti-communism, anti-communism, anti-communism at a time when everyone was very, very worried about communism and how that would affect their culture. So like, of course, you know, if you're the, and then as the soon random as you got person, the power, you signed a pact with Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're the pe- you're the people that they're trying that are in charge of electing. Then you're you're like, oh yeah, that sound. I'm anti that too. I yeah, get, sign me up. You know, like it, it makes sense. We or again, it's the it's not even just virtual virtue signaling. It's like I want th- I want things to be better than they are. Um, well, but but that I want things to be better than they are comes with, as you said, a certain caveat from the people giving the pitch that tends to put my back up, which is essentially everything would be better if everyone did what I say. And that seems to be the kind of basic pitch of most people who are putting forward, shall we say, a an agenda driven by either grievance or catastrophe. So on the one hand, people who are saying there's something that's either going very wrong or that will go very wrong unless we make sweeping changes. And that's why I should have the power. And there are other people saying that these groups of people are being hurt and subjugated. And so to fix that, I, not they, I should have the power to empower them, right? It's a very... And and it makes me think of this distinction in the, the, the sound of the word utopia that I find fascinating, which is that it's utopia, but there's also eutopia with an E on the front. And utopia means no place in Greek, right? And eutopia means good place. So mm-hmm. it's a utopia. It's a exactly. Yeah. It's a pun yep. sitting somewhere between a place that doesn't or can't exist yes, and a place exactly. that's good. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a you know a sense of the impossibility of that good place that is part of why we prefer talking about the bad stuff. And you know Thomas More, who penned that novel, um, was very much satirizing the the you know Italy he lived in, and was in a time when it was very dangerous to do so. Um, he was eventually killed because he refused to acknowledge the king's, you know, marriage or annulment of, of his last marriage. He was, he was a staunch Catholic. Um, so I think that to call it both good place and no place is a little bit way of playing it safe, too. Um, because you're like, well, this is no, uh, here's my idea for a better culture, but it doesn't even exist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that you're doing anything wrong. Yeah, not that you're doing anything wrong. Just, uh, just here's some ideas. <laughs> Well, and maybe, I mean, you are very well versed from your work and your own reading and research in the history of these books about utopian places. And I just wonder, would I be off base if I observed that as the material circumstances of daily life have improved, child mortality goes down, sicknesses are cured, medicine becomes more effective, society becomes more, quite literally, more liberal 
in terms of who is accepted, who falls within the mainstream, who can walk down the street holding hands with who, and so on. It's disingenuous in the extreme to suggest that society is worse now in the material, self-evident ways than it was. No, it's way um, better. And, and that's what I mean, that at the same time that that's been going on, we've moved from speculative utopian novels written in dark times to really dark fiction. So what is it, as things get better, why do we have darker dreams? I don't know the answer to that, but it's, I mean, it's the same reason why the, what is, it's something like the demographic of people who listen to true crime murder is like, it's all just like housewives, um, middle class, <laughs> like successful. Well, who do you think marries the serial people? killers by mail? <laughs> <laughs> I think I do think you have to be a certain level of, of happiness to be able to withstand the dark. Like you're not going to if you're if you're living in um, like a horrible life situation, you wouldn't want to read a dystopian novel. Like if you're if like say true. you were sex trafficked your whole life, like are you going to re- want to read a novel in which case in which that happens all the time? Probably not. But if you're like super happy and life is good, why not read it? Because it's fun and it's not any real threat to you. How um, the other half lives. So maybe actually I do have an answer to that question after all. Sounds it sounds it's like you have a pretty good one. Because as we get happier, one. we're more okay, able to withstand the darker. Would be my answer. See, because I, I, you know, I'll never forget when I I visited a few places in sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. and when I've been there, the the music is so cheerful, so upbeat, dancey, major chords, uplifting, happy voices singing in harmony. And then a country like Norway, which regularly is in the top three on the Human Development Index, produces satanic black metal. What? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, that actually makes sense if you think about it in your yeah. way of putting it right, right. It's, and and this is why in dark times hollywood and and publishing houses they all suddenly turn into kind of no what people want is escape what people want is the happy stuff mm-hmm. but but the happy stuff i mean what passes for entertainment now marvel movies and that kind of thing it i can't remember really maybe i'm being disingenuous slightly but i i, I don't think i can remember the last time i saw a film that where the lead wasn't an anti-hero, where it wasn't a flawed person suffering with some serious problem mm-hmm. who'd had some awful thing happen to them. You know, a, a kind of just a strong central character that that had real principles and and didn't do terrible things or have some fatal problem in their mind or in their heart. I, I just don't know if we we create or or envisage characters like that anymore. I... I do think there is a, a case for, okay, I have maybe a controversial opinion on this because- Hit me, love it. Don't you kind of feel like the anti-hero maybe is causing people to think about things more traumatically or to feel like they have more trauma in their lives? I'm talking about like mental health. Um, I feel like mental health is, is maybe an issue that um, is- For example, I have friends who 
who are very, very upset because they were once shoved into a locker by a high school student when they were in high school. And that still traumatizes them to this day. And that was like a huge trauma for them. Whereas I was like, oh, yeah, I was bullied really hardcore in high school too. But like everybody was, it's not traumatic. It's just like, you know, it's just a part of life. Like I don't see that as a trauma. Um, And then I read this study that was about um, miscarriage throughout the world and how different cultures look at it. And it was, it was saying that in places where, where um, miscarriage is really, really common, it's not actually that just, it's not seen as a trauma. It's just like seen as an everyday thing. You know, people, people will be like, oh, I had a miscarriage. Oh, I'm sorry. That sucks. Like, but they have a different relationship with it. Whereas in the U.S., having a miscarriage is like a serious trauma because in our head, we imagine that it never happens. Um, And so it feels like this rare, this rare trauma. And I kind of feel that that TV is doing this to us where it's making it seem like everything should be a trauma. And then we associate it as as a trauma. Um, One example that I thought was a great counterbalance was also a Taika Waititi film, which was The Hunt for the Wilder People. It was the first time I've ever seen a foster youth not portrayed as a traumatic character. Every time you ever see a, you know, a high school or middle school kid as a foster kid in a movie, it, this, is a, there, this is a hugely traumatized individual. And The Hunt for the Wilder People was the first time I saw that and I thought, oh, this doesn't have to be a traumatizing experience. Like, this kid is thriving. He's doing well. Um, same with Shit's Creek when they decided to have a worldview in which, you know, being associated with any kind of like LGBTQ community was not a trauma. They decided that was not going to be a trauma in their show. You have these gay characters um, and... It, and none of them are ever dealing with that being a trauma. And how much, like, that would be so much better for today's youth to see that you can be um, you can be gay or you can identify as queer, and that doesn't have to be a traumatic thing. Like, whereas even though, you know, most media will portray it as this horribly depressing and horribly traumatic thing. Like, I, I think that we need to stop having so many traumatic antiheroes that are just completely traumatized. We need to have characters that can that can have bad things happen to them and still not be traumatized by them because that's normal. That's part of life. And to be resilient is not the same as being unfeeling. Exactly. Exactly. I've had horribly traumatic things happen to me in my life, but I don't, I choose not to see them as a trauma. Um, And I think that is better. I, I wonder like if I read a, say I read a book by Hemingway, for example, just to, not to choose him for him, but as part of a generation of writers. Don't get me started with Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Here we go. Well, uh, just to kind of, if you read Henry Miller, one of these guys from that generation, you read the, the bio at the beginning of the book and all these guys. And of course, yes, I know they were almost all guys. That's a whole other conversation. I'm not promoting that as a desirable <laughs> thing, but, but they were all like, served in the military, drove an ambulance, was on the front line, was a cub reporter on a crime beat. They, they lived in the world. They had experiences in a, in a rough and tumble, difficult, uncertain environment where they, where they themselves lived and met other people who were living in the raw, who were living, uh, a difficult 
experience or a difficult life. And then they leveraged that experience of human beings into literature. So even if they were people who wanted to be writers from when they were teenagers, they didn't come out at the age of 21, like now having not really ever seen someone crying about anything other than a bad grade or a wedgie, I'm going to write about suffering or a singer who comes out and, and releases a single at the age of 19 about love. And it's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not kind of uh, putting down the idea that younger people don't have deep experiences. I just mean that the, the, the knowledge of extremity. You can have trauma and not be traumatized. Sure, but also that the knowledge of extremity, the, the, the real gamut of human emotions, going through that perhaps leads to a, a different picture of how people are shaped. And when we have a kind of television or uh, media-driven idea of how people are shaped, when a writer goes about constructing a character, at least a writer who's kind of trained through the accepted methods, you want to have a character who's flawed. They have to have something happen to them that introduces this kind of negative flow into their being. And so, you know, that's why you have so many central characters who ha who lost a child. It's like the off-the-shelf writer's solution to, you know, how can we have this character be haunted? Well, they lost a kid when they were younger. Boom, done. So, so this idea, in a way, it feels to me like part of what you're saying is when we are culture, it's a postmodern idea, really, that when we're culturally influenced by media, where our experience of the world is watching things about the world, we are learning about our fellow human beings based on how the fake human beings in the story world are shaped. Yes. Which leads us to think, oh, well, if something negative happened to me in my childhood, then that is now my flaw for my life, perhaps. Exactly. Exactly. And when you live in the real world, you see that people have awful, unbelievable experiences and then go win a Nobel Prize or swim across the Atlantic or just have a wonderful family life and don't show any kind of pathology about their negative experiences. So I, I think you're really exactly. onto something. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's kind of funny. Like John Wick tries to satirize that idea because it's like it's about his he, dog. Yeah, his trauma is his dog. They killed <laughs> and my he dog. He goes way over the handle yeah. about it. But I think that that's kind of making fun of our modern culture to like be so traumatized by something that you're like going on full war. I mean, that's a common that's a common theme in a movie. So. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, you got to have an inciting incident anyway. Yeah, the inciting incident, you know, that causes you to go crazy. We don't have to be like that in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and we another thing that came up when you were speaking is Jean Baudrillard, the the philosopher. Um, have you ever read a, a very short book of his called The Spirit of Terrorism? No. And he, I'm not going to encourage anyone to read Baudrillard, don't worry. But okay. in that book, he hits upon a very interesting idea where he's talking about, it was his kind of philosophical response to 9-11 and to suicide terrorism more broadly. And one of his observations was that the Western world, if that is a definition that still holds meaning, 
is a society that has shaped itself on the basis of defeating death. That we, we want to be alive. We worship youth. We worship longevity. We want to stay alive as long as possible. We want people not to die. We want people not to be infirm and not to be sick. And therefore, a society which at its heart has this total abhorrence of infirmity and death, and in a way has almost banished the acceptability of the shadow part of our existence out of our worldview, to be challenged by people who worship and seek death and do not want to preserve their own lives is like a clash of polarities that, that can never be reconciled. And I've never forgotten that observation, and I feel like it's related to what we've been talking about as well. Well, I think um, even then, you know, those are people that, I mean, from what I understand, the um, suicide, uh, what are those called? Suicide violent episodes? Well, they're not always bombers, so yes, I guess you just say suicide terrorists. Yeah. Okay, suicide terrorists, like... Um, from what I understand, that's because um, the idea of being a martyr is glorified, right? And if you, and if, you know, in the past, being a martyr meant like somebody was persecuting you for your faith, so you died, you know, believing in your faith. But I think the shortcut to that, <laughs> yeah, the shortcut to that, if nobody's persecuting you and your religion, is like, oh, well, I'll just go kill myself for the cause and then be a martyr. Um, it's like the the glorification of the martyr, I, at least from what I understand, which is— Yeah, and that's a valid point as well. But in a way, you know, I guess in a way to value an eternal life in paradise more than a life on earth is still to value life. And you could argue that people don't necessarily think they really die which is why they're not actually seeking death and that that could be a, a broader more philosophical discussion I, I i guess that's an argument that holds water i wouldn't challenge it too much but my feeling is just that there's uh, there's something in baudrillard's point about that that there's an that there's an almost irreconcilable difference between um an individual who who worships death and an individual who worships life. Uh, yeah. And that culturally we've been so terrified and horrified about the negative side of life, or rather what we think is the negative side of life. But in fact, it's just a part of life. Death is a part of life. Like you said about miscarriages, I'm sure they're not pleasant or desirable for the individuals who have them, but they're part of life. They happen. And we have this habit we brought it up earlier with the puddles and the rain, right? That we have this habit of determining that something is good and something is bad simply because yes. it's either desirable or undesirable. But but one doesn't stop being a natural part of life just because we don't like it. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is my case for a kind of humanism because uh, a lot of religion, if you add in the, the era of an afterlife, well – there's so much gray area there. Um, we probably can't get on the same page over what we should do with our lives if we have different views on what's going to happen in the afterlife to us, you know. But we can both agree that what happens here, that we should, 
you know, treat people with kindness and respect and treat people the way you want to be treated and don't people mm. treat people the way you don't want to be treated. So like to me, the, hu- the humanist idea of like, okay, we can follow the golden rule on life. We can all get behind that even if different religions have different views on what, you know, what will happen afterwards. Well, since you brought up religion, I, uh, I'm curious if you're willing to circle back to this uh, new to me uh, field of study known as Mariology, or is it Mariology? I, Mariology. I, I'm prob- yeah, yeah I'm, I'm pronouncing it wrong. Of course, I am. <laughs> no. uh, and two reasons: one, because I'm fascinated by it as a concept, as a study, and and I'm curious as to why that was what you wanted for yourself for your graduate studies, but also because. A common feature historically in totalitarian systems is either the eradication of religion or the replacement of it with something else. There's Nicholas Goodrich Clark, right, has written quite a lot about his idea that that Nazism wasn't a political ideology. It was a religion and it became the state religion of Germany instead of Christianity as a kind of hodgepodge of paganism and, and blood and soil mythology, all that stuff. And you see that with communism as well. The, the belief that, uh, or historical communism, shall we say, uh, the belief that religion is the opiate of the masses. So I'm curious about where Mariology came into your life, where it sits in terms of your own religious or non-religious attitudes. And, and why you think it is that regimes that want to control people in a way have to either kill or replace their God. Mm, okay. Too big. Too big Answers questions. on a postcard. 25 words. Okay. Away. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. So I think I can answer very quickly the people using religion for totalitarian. Um, I don't think, I don't actually think religion is the impetus of evil. I think it's the impetus of evil and good, depending on how you use it. And people will use religion for evil and they will use it for good just as they will any ideology. Um, so I'm not, I'm not convinced that like having religion or having not having religion is like better or worse than anything else. It's just like, what, what do you want to do with it? So it's, I kind of think that it comes back to human intention and whether or not you yourself are are a good person rather than the religion itself. Um, and then second, I think that um, my interest in Mariology came from when I was in my 20s. I, I do these reading challenges for myself where I like pick something media I want to tackle and then I spend a lot of time reading it. So I read the Bible front to back um, and studied it as I was writing it, or as I was reading it. And when I got to the end, I was not satisfied <laughs> that I understood why um, why we were supposed to believe this religion. And I needed earlier source materials. <laughs> so <laughs> I so um, I remembered reading at the time that Dan Brown was given access to the Vatican Library to write the Da Vinci Code, um, and that he was able to study some of the earliest documents of that faith by doing that. And then after he wrote the Da Vinci Code, the Pope shut that down and made it so that civilians could not enter the Vatican Library anymore. <laughs> but the Marian Library was still available. 
Ah. But the Marion Library, to access it, you had to be a student of Mariology. Um, and, um, and anyways, I was interested in that because I was very interested in the feminine in religion more so than I was in the masculine in religion anyways. So, um, I decided to pursue it and I did get access to the Marian Research Library, which was really incredible, especially because now the program doesn't exist anymore. Um, they the year, at, barn the year after well. I graduated, they closed the Mary, they closed the Mariology program. What did um, you do to piss them off? Why, why, <laughs> why? <laughs> how did you manage to burn that bridge? <laughs> uh, you know, it was kind of funny because I was the only lay, well, I'm not the only lay person. There were other. Mariologists. Maybe, maybe two other lay, lay people in my program. Everybody else was priests and nuns. Um, so it was a very interesting experience. But, um, but yeah, so I went and studied as everything I could get my hands on and of, you know, even earlier time periods than the Bible. Because, you know, the New Testament, um, the Gospels are all, you know, start or all, were all written after the destruction of the temple in, you know, 70, after 70 AD-ish. So they're far removed from the events that they're writing about anyways. So I wanted to understand kind of like what led up to that and everything. Um and that's why I like pursued my my Mariology degree or uh, program, and it was really interesting um, from that standpoint. Um, I, I think that I, I mean I could go into great depth on what I thought was very interesting there, but um, but ultimately I found that very fascinating, and I did not I did just decide not to be religious at all after that. <laughs> interesting. So you you decided not to be religious at all that. I decided it's, to be religious. It sounds like a wonder. Like that. it's, but, oh, I, so you mean you you decided you were going to be religious and read the Bible and and try to believe it? Is that it? Well, I, I was reading a lot of the Dalai Lama at the time, and um, he had this quote My about favorite Lama. <laughs> he has this quote. He's like all these spiritual seekers are always coming up. To, you know, to Dharamsala to get my advice and wisdom. And he's like, what I say, what I always tell them is, there are a million roads to peace. Just pick which one you want to be on and stick with it. Because otherwise, you'll just be spiritually confused and you'll feel like you're always searching for the answer and never finding it. So he's like, just like pick one and then you can be at peace. And, and I think something he said, something along the lines of like, choose whatever faith you grew up in, that'll be the easiest or whatever. So I was like, okay, like I'm going to be a Catholic because I've always thought it was beautiful. I love the cathedrals, the stained glass, the smoke and the incense, all that stuff. I like thought it was Who doesn't love incense and gold? It was great. Um, The art, the choirs, I could go on and on. Um, So I decided that I was going to be Catholic, but then um, naturally just approached it like I approached my Catholicism like a researcher and (laughs) trying to prove why it existed or why it was true which obviously I couldn't do (laughs) so you decided to become a Catholic and then did an un-Catholic thing like let's go into this with an analytical framework and try and dissect the origins so that I know for a fact this is historically the basis of my faith telling about my personality (laughs) 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 i wish i I could just be one of those people that you know just blind this sounds legit (laughs) this sounds legit cool i'm in but i was like if i'm gonna believe this and base my whole life around it then it better be true so (laughs) (laughs) and how'd that work out for you (laughs) was not true (laughs) 
And, and so your qualified opinion as a bona fide Mariologist who has read the Bible cover to cover and visited and presumably read some of the contents of the Marian library is nah. <laughs> no, is that what you're saying? Not how I would put it. <laughs> I, I actually, I still think that it's very powerful. I think, and I would never be an apologist, like trying to convince somebody that their religion is not true because I still see the beauty of it and why you would want to believe that. And I would not want to take that away from anyone. Um, but I think for me, you know, learning, learning and studying these original texts, like, for example, um, you know, one thing that Catholics really hinge on is that Mary was a virgin, physically never had sex. Um, but when you study the, you know, the literature in the original Greek, which the, you know, Gospels were written in, um, Mary, the word for virgin was parthenos, which is a Greek term. It actually meant unmarried at the time. Another famous unmarried woman at that time, Isis, was the goddess in Egyptian culture. Um, but she did have sex. She had sex with Osiris, and that's what, or more dead Osiris, brother, actually. Right? I don't know. I thought he was her brother. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyways. But, um, and that's what caused her to give birth to Horus, who was also called the son of God. And um, Isis was also called the um, queen of heaven. Um, she was also called the mother of God. She was, you know. So we see all these terminologies being used for Isis at that time that were then being also used to for Mary. And it was kind of like these New Testament authors were like, okay, you know, Isis, like, and you know, the whole story of that God, like, this is the new Isis. Like it was, it would be like today saying, um, they are the Apple of app of the tech companies. You're like, immediately you know what that means because we're very familiar with Apple and their minimalist design and the white boxes and everything. Um, and, and that's very much what New Testament authors were doing. And so to, to attribute the same importance to Mary, they were like, this is an important figure is what we're trying to tell you. And we're saying that she was unmarried because at the time being unmarried meant that you didn't, you weren't the property of your husband. You weren't yet purchased. Um, you were, you know, and so that was why it was powerful. It had nothing to do with physicality until centuries, centuries, and centuries later. I mean, even till to the point that they're, you know, I think there was a traditional precedent earlier, but it wasn't until it was translated in English and the word virgin was used that it got the physical sense uh, in a more tangible way. It was more so, that she was an independent woman. It, Exactly. She belonged to no man, and that was powerful. So, like, that is still a powerful story. If we go back to the original way that it was written and the original way that it was intended, that is still a powerful story, even without all the things we added to it in the years and generations after. So, I don't I don't think that we need to take that away and be like, that's not still a powerful mythology or a story. Like, it still is. We're just, you know, I think we add a bunch of stuff and interpret it differently now. And if someone is going to come from a deprived, difficult situation and raise a child who then goes on to be fierce and independent and overthrow norms and demand society to adjust to make space for them, it's going to be a strong, independent single mother that does it. Just ask Tupac. And... <laughs> Exactly. And and the New Testament authors were writing with a very specific cause. They were opposing the Roman government who destroyed their temple. 
and their city. And they're and what are you going to do in opposition to that? You're going to say, oh, well, okay, I don't want to, you know, be too controversial to people that may be Catholic listening to this, but if we're not going to assume that Mary was was physically a virgin, then she was probably raped by a Roman soldier. That was very, very common in those days. So to say, okay, she was not married and she had a son and that son rose up and, and, you know, was a peaceful protester against the Roman government. Okay. Super powerful story. Super powerful story. Like you don't even need to add everything to it for that to still be a powerful story of this you know, origin unmarried story. woman. Yeah. yeah it's origin great. story about a flawed character yes. springing from a trauma. Right. Right. And then exactly. fast forward 2000 years and you've got Batman watching his parents <laughs> get shot in an alley. No, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah, not making yeah. light of it. No, I'm just totally. saying that, And this is part right. of why I love discussing the creative and the artistic interpretations of these ideas about the world and about people, because we really do see that, these are these are our myths these are our fables and they've aged with us and they've changed with us and we've shaped them differently and we've put them into new modern contexts and in some ways maybe simplified or debased them and in other ways maybe kind of zhuzhed them up a bit but like isis and osiris and horus and you know a trinity and then another trinity and Mm -hmm. and then into the modern age with our own versions of this. And by the way, there's also a long tradition. I'm sure you came across it of kind of apocalyptic. I won't, I won't harsh the mellow of some very devout religious people, but should we say apocalyptic predictions that did not come to pass? There's a, there's a book by John Michael Greer called apocalypse, not uh, about all the times the that. world was supposed to end and didn't. <laughs> um, and, and in a way, our dis, you know, one generous or optimistic way of looking at our dystopian ideas, these dark stories we tell about the world, either in nonfiction or fiction, is humans seem to, among our many traits, be people who love the idea of an impending catastrophe. I mean, in a way, it speaks Mm -hmm. to our mortality, right? Each of us is a world. And we're born with a tremendous burden of being, we at least we believe, the only species that really knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that our world, the world of me, will come to an end. Each of us is living with an impending apocalypse. It's the name of our species, Homo sapiens, right? The man who knows. And, And I think that there's something in us may be so deep it's it's not intellectual that we deal with the inevitability of our life arc by interpreting it and seeing its reflections and shadows and projections into the world around us maybe yeah i mean that is certainly the case with the jesus mary story which you know, it was originally a story of rising up against your oppressors and there's still power to these people that were destroyed, which then the exact same story is used a thousand years later to, as a way of showing why women needed to be meek and subservient and, you know, hands in prayer and quiet and graceful. Um, you know, the, the same the same story is used in so many different ways. So... Mm-hmm depending on our own interpretation and what we 
what we want to see in the world. Yeah. There's, did you ever see a film called Jacob's Ladder? No. It's a wonderful movie. I mean, probably not going to be on your watch list because it's not an uplifting movie. I mean, in one interpretation, maybe it is. Um, and I won't spoil it by telling you, you know, the twists and turns of the story. But there's a wonderful line spoken by one of the characters where he says that it's a matter of perception that on the one hand you might feel that you're assailed by evil spirits who are torturing you because they're taking away all of your attachments to your terrestrial life but if you think of it differently then the demons that are torturing you by showing you how the real world the physical world doesn't matter then really they're just angels setting you free and it's just a matter of how you look at it. And in a way, I guess, our, our catastrophizing, our emphasis on trauma, our love of the melodramatic and of the apocalyptic, again, it's, it's a matter of perception in a way, right? That when people say we have to save the planet, the planet will be fine. I know. What we really mean is whatever iteration of human civilization we are currently experiencing may not be stable or sustainable in a new environmental context. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the transient portion of this, uh, exactly. this earth. <laughs> yep. That's why I took so much issue with the ministry for the future book, because that is supposed to be, people call it a utopian. I have no idea why it is. Um, but I was so frustrated with it because it's just showing how the climate is making the earth uninhabitable and everybody just dies. I mean, everybody in India just gets cooked, uh, cause it's too hot in a heat wave and just dies. Um, and the whole time I was reading it the whole way through, all these people are trying to come up with solutions, geotech, geoengineering solutions to try to make the sun less hot. And, and I was like, literally this whole book could be solved with one thing. Allow people to move. If we didn't have borders, if countries let other people in, then everybody <laughs> in India could have moved. I mean, the, the history of, we were just talking about Homo sapiens, the history of all of our life, of like humanity has been nomadic moving based on the temperatures of the earth. The fact that we're going to lock somebody in and say they're stuck to live in a place that it was too hot or too cold is the problem, not the fact that there are places that are too hot or too cold. Because <laughs> there are other places that are not. <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it from that angle before. That's a good point. I, I do remember you'd written you'd written a, one of your articles about an idea of a borderless world where people can just kind of like... <laughs> uh, uh, the walking dead idea you wake up one day and suddenly there's no borders there's no guards telling you you can't go there you can't move there no one's going to check your residency papers and you drew on a, a study that had shown where people would move to is that correct mm -hmm. yeah and what the world would look like how it would change if if borders were not something that prevented people from going where they wanted to go yep and your conclusion was that um, 
if you if you could live wherever in the world you wanted, you would pick a place that is ideal for you. Maybe if you want to go to college, you pick a place with free education. Maybe if you, you know, you go move to the Nordic countries. Maybe if you, you know, value weather, you go move down to Mexico. Maybe if you, um, you know, want to have a good job, you move to, the, to a center where there's a lot of economy. Um, you want free childcare, you can go have a big family. You know, the, these places... Um, and what that would do is if suddenly, uh, you know, I, I also predicated my idea on the fact that everything would move to a sales tax rather than an income tax, just because if you're transient and you're, I mean, right now the income tax is already a huge problem because I can be living in Spain on a digital nomad visa and be being taxed in Utah, which is getting my money, which is like a silly because my my money should be going to where I'm living. It should be, I should be fueling the economy I choose to live in. So in this case, if the borders are open and we um, are, are, and they're all earning money on sales tax, then it's in the country's best interest to be the best place to live because that's how they'll, they'll attract people and money. And if they're not, then everyone will leave. What would happen? I mean, when Russia started to open the conscription, what happened? 100,000 people left and went to Georgia. And Georgia becomes, suddenly starts having this bustling economy all these, of the, all these Russian people that moved in. Well, the, those people were only able to do that somewhat illegally, so that wasn't available to the larger population. But if that was more legal, if you could, if you could um, move from China to the U.S., if you could move to Russia from the U.S., then what would happen? We would pull the air, you know, the wind out of the sails of some very totalitarian governments nobody wants to live under. Um, and if you were a good place to live, then those places would get better to live because they're richer. You know, this is where I think the the dark, twisted, knotted, <laughs> gnarled ghoul in the corner of the my uh, of my mind. Just, I mean, all I think about is the fact that people move around already, right? We have. Perhaps long-standing, but uh, yeah, I mean, we have long-standing debates about migration and immigration mm -hmm. around the world, and at least according to the people that tell the story about it, uh, a significant rise in both its prevalence and the volume of people crossing borders, and it's not usually the more open economies that people want to move to that are the ones that are the limiting factor. It's more usually the repressive regimes not wanting to lose their worker base, their tax base. Right, right. So, I, I mean, it, it sounds like China a would have to place. say we're not – if the U.S. said the borders are open for you to live here and Russia and China were still like, no, but you have to stay here, it would still be way easier to move. Trying to keep somebody from leaving someplace is much harder than trying to allow someone to enter it. Yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're possibly moving towards a time where we're going to start having arguments like that more frequently anyway, simply because there are many reasons to discuss some of the reasons you've given uh, a world where we have a less nationalistic idea mm -hmm. of of where the the locus of control should be over the movement of populations mm -hmm. but at the same time we do see that where 
people's passionate concerns lie tend to be where they live and where the rubber meets the road of meaningful adjustments it happens on a local level so for example you know we we per I, I could speculate that we could be more likely to resolve environmental challenges with meaningful local action protecting waterways and forests and and uh, wetlands and so forth than international treaties that simply introduce additional taxes and and uh, a kind of trading system between major companies um, that's just a theory of mine but that's kind of what I mean that this has been a question for a very long time who really has the right to be in a place and who has the right to decide who comes and who goes and more often than not it's the gang whomever is gathering the tribute of an area decides who comes in and wants people to stay and pay <laughs> and wants to control against people coming in who are going to challenge their authority right um and perhaps a time for that mentality is passing and something new might be arising but whether it would be a better or more sensitive or human centered idea maybe i'm more cynical than hopeful <laughs> well this is why i loved um matthew iglesias's book one billion americans because he actually takes a he takes a very um He's all, he he's pro-immigration. He wants there to be one billion Americans, but he's like he makes a kind of conservative fit case for why we should do that, and that's that India and China have triple, quadruple the people that we do. They're you know good. They they are going to control the hegemony way sooner than any of us think. And <laughs> and I think that in the U.S. we're like, well, we have the biggest military, so. We will always be the, you know, in the globally dominant position, but wait until you have to pit the Navy against China and the South China Sea to defend Taiwan. See how that works out. Exactly. Like we're there is, you know, in the next World War Two, there's a good, there's a good chance the U.S. won't win. And it's not because we're not strong enough with our military; it's because we don't have enough people. Well, and, um, and it also wouldn't necessarily mean that the U.S. would be on the wrong side of it in terms of the purpose of a fight like that that's the the risky thing right the, the well, like the man in the high castle by philip k dick a very famous dystopian novel about what would have happened if the nazis and the japanese had won the second world war and divvied up dominance over the u.s right it's the winning side that writes the history books exactly. another great novel fatherland by robert harris about nazi germany winning the second world war and it's decades later that a dogged investigator discovers the Holocaust because no one ever found out about it because the Nazis won the war. So nobody ever learned, you know, right. it's, it's, yeah. uh, it, this is really something that I do think about that it, as we see a new movement of jostling for position and a preparation for potentially another global fight over who's going to determine the path of global affairs for the next, uh, yeah. hundred years, it worries me that uh, the winning side is the one that will write the story of the battle. Absolutely. And, 
And when we have regimes that, uh, shall we say, are not overtly sympathetic to values that I would consider human-centered and, and liberal and uh, focused on lifting up individuals and, and ensuring civil liberties, it's quite worrying to see how powerful they are on paper. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it, it's, we don't want, I, I hope it doesn't come to that, but it, I mean, it, it doesn't even need to come to war for that to be an issue. I mean, if if China wants to start, I mean, they're, they already have, I guess, some sort of re-education camps or whatever, some dubious moral things happening, I guess. Um, they could decide to, they could decide that we want to pollute the world a ton and have tons of these re-education camps, and that's totally okay, and there's nothing anybody else in the world can do with it. And in fact, they won't trade with America if America doesn't get on board and start taking some of their hostages and start polluting more. <laughs> I'm giving a ridiculous example, but I'm just saying, like, our our power as a country comes not just from military, but also from trade. Um, we can, we can, we can, are for and we in a lot of ways force China get to get better on um, on pollution because if not we weren't going to buy from them you know we have certain standards we require them to adhere to for us to to purchase from them um, and that has forced them to act in a certain way so they could just as easily force us to act in a certain way if they have the economic power and it's very likely very easy for them to do that. Mm. And I'd also propose that the strongest, it, it, I would like to believe that the strongest weapon in the American arsenal is the American story. And Aww. I think that's really where, no, 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 for real. I, 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 <laughs> I, I would like to think that because I think that is in my limited subjective understanding of humans a more likely reason for people to walk hundreds or thousands of miles hungry and cold and thirsty just in order to be illegal and unwelcome in a different place perhaps where they don't even speak the language whether it is absolutely true or not, whether it's justified or not, whether it contains elisions of inconvenient or horrific historical actions. I think we all know the answers to those questions, but the idea that America chose to represent and the story it chose to tell about itself, I believe is what attracted people there. Oh yeah. The and, American dream. That's a powerful well, story. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the old George Carlin joke, right? That you know why they call it the American Dream is because you have to be asleep to believe it. Uh, <laughs> they say there are other places that are you can better achieve the American Dream than America, but the yeah, fact yeah. that America has the story—that's to your point—that's the most powerful yeah. thing. And it, it circles back to you know where we kind of jumped off is yeah. narratives matter, stories matter, mm -hmm. mythology matters, mm -hmm. and people. For whatever reason may feel that they are better placed to be free in the self-described land of the free than in a country with more civil liberties who knows um and in a way it feels to me that one of the 
dystopian trends I see in American politics and society is the inability or unwillingness to to both live up to and to continue the telling of that story. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's it's an own goal. It's a it's a it's an internal collapse, not a it's not an outside force per se, or, or rather it, it would be too easy to blame it on a, on a bad actor who's deceiving Americans into hating their own country. I, I think there's something about a kind of imperial exhaustion. You know, Rome ceases to be a republic, it becomes an empire, and then it just mm-hmm. feels hollow and dishonest and people stop believing in it, and it just falls away. And there's something very poignant about that. And I think that the idea of what America set itself out to mean to people, whether or not it's true, for that to be gone from the world, I think, would would be an impoverishment. And I, I, I really don't want that to sound like a jingoistic or a nationalistic thing, because I don't mean it that way. Yeah, I mean, like every country, I think it's, it's complex. I think America is unique in that it's maybe one of the first places where so many cultures became one. So I do think it's kind of weird that we call it an American culture now, because whatever we would call an American culture is like 200 years old. And we were all like, then everybody was a bunch of different cultures. Um, So it's, it's like, well, we're just really an example of a global culture. And like, that's Mm. kind of what it's just going to look like when as more and more people, you know, combine in a place. Um, and this, you know, people will also say like, oh, the Westernization of the world is as if everything is becoming more like America. But like, again, America is the mingling of hundreds of other cultures. And the more cultures mingle, the more they become like each other and they start to speak the same language. And they, you know, you start to, you can hail an Uber in France just as you can in the U.S. Like there are parts of the culture that become homogenized naturally as a, as a result of, a mingling of people because you need to be able to work together and and you know have community together so you know i think it's kind of it's maybe it is the westernization of the world but really it's just the globalization of the world as people you know come together more that's what it kind of ends up looking like america because that's what america already did (laughs) well so going back to your idea of a world without borders where people go where they want in a way some things globalize before others, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't think it's necessarily a good thing that we that we that we create our roles based on our ethnicities or where we're from. I think that that has created that has had some bad effects too. That's why a lot of people went to wars. A lot of wars are you know that. Kind well, and of, you could even argue that a lot of the people who migrated to the United States to begin with were leaving places where they were defined by who other people thought they were. Exactly. Exactly. It's much better to group ourselves by, oh, we all play the same video game or like we all go to the same yoga studio or <laughs> we're, all, we're all on sub, we're all Substack writers. Like there are better groupings of people than like where we live in our ethnicity. Well, that's, I mean, that's what, in that's one of the kind of more upbeat side effects of the internet i think and in a way it was its original spirit the kind of news group anarchic chat room buddy buddy idea of whoever you were 
talking to online was your kind of person because of what you were talking about or what you were interested in. And it really didn't matter totally. where they were from. Uh, yeah. It's a, and so as we, um, as we've spent this time together, I'm curious to ask you before you wrap up your desire for a positive outlook, your emphasis on utopia and hopefulness. So where do you find your hope? Um, that's an interesting question because everywhere the world keeps getting better. There are good stories that show us why that is and how that could continue to be. We all have ideas about how we can make it even better from here. Uh, unfortunately, all of our journalism points out all the problems and a lot of our fiction is dystopian. So even though everything is getting better and there's a lot more better things we can do, we still see the world as a negative place. And this is the doomerism that I am up against in my work. And from the bottom of my heart, I hope <laughs> that your candle overcomes the darkness, as they say. Nothing I, uh... against dystopian fiction. <laughs> we just need more utopian fiction to even up the balance a little bit. Don't get me wrong. I, th I, I, I agree with you. I, I, uh, I hope that hope can grow and... Uh, and actually meet the world in a meaningful way rather than just being a kind of nice fantasy about what could be, you know, hope, hope on one side is necessary and useful. And on the other side, it can be counterproductive as a distraction. So I think anything that, um, can help us to become more connected to our fellow human beings, more compassionate, more engaged with the real world, and more accepting of reality, as we were saying, about the rough comes with the smooth, not to be catastrophic in our thinking, not to be fixated on our own negative experiences as defining us. You know, some possibility of, uh, of actually growing in some meaningful way. I think that's, that's something I would hope for. I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, I, uh, I hope that it's been pleasant speaking to me because it's definitely been wonderful speaking with you. Yeah, that was really fun. Thank you. What a conversation. <laughs> really covered uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we definitely stretched our War, legs. War, religion, Nazis, fiction. <laughs> you single-handedly disproving Catholicism. <laughs> Fantastic. No, <laughs> I hope that's not the takeaway. This is why I don't want to talk about religion too much. <laughs> I, I, I'm joking. That's obviously that's the bit I'll clip and put out on uh, Twitter. But no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, you can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of 1984 today. I'm grateful to our guest L. Griffin for joining us, and of course to you for listening. Please check the show notes for links to Elle's work. And as usual, if you want to support this podcast, please share widely. Wherever you are, whatever you're up to, keep the fire burning. We'll be back with more fuel next time. Goodbye. <laughs>